Welcome to this week's edition of the People Progressing Podcast, and this is going to be a really, really powerful show. Um, I have Preston Adams on today, and um, we're going to we're going to dive into some deep subjects about our youth and and uh, how we can help our youth more today. And I'm just really excited to have you on, Preston. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where you grew up, what you kind of did as a kid, and and some of those things. Well, Joe, I'm a I'm honored and privileged to be a part of these conversations. I really am. Um, <clears throat> for anybody to listen to my story or the story of my young people, it's it's really a privilege. So I appreciate you for having me. Um, a little bit about me. Grew up, uh, born and raised in Aurora, Colorado. Um, my, my dad was born there and raised there. My grandparents or my grandfather taught in Aurora. My dad taught in Aurora. So we're kind of Aurora babies. My wife is from Aurora. So yeah, we're, we're about it. Um, growing up, um, being the son of two educators, school was always really important. Um, and then my dad coached football and baseball. So <clears throat> athletics were always kind of a part of our life. Um, so I grew up focusing on those two areas, really focused on doing well in school and doing well in sports, um, played football, baseball, basketball uh, through middle school. And then in high school, really focused on baseball and basketball, played those all four years of high school. Um, I have two younger siblings, so I'm the oldest. So um, have a little bit of the eldest traits, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, grew up, you know, fairly privileged I mean you know both parents are teachers we didn't make a ton of money but really privileged middle class and and um like I said my my parents taught and my dad taught at um Hinkley which is kind of on the north side of Aurora and so I also got to experience some more um diversity and got to see some more uh kind of poverty and some things that like we just didn't experience and um I just think that kind of just initiated the trajectory for my life in, in a sense um but yeah I mean like I said I, I was a pretty shy introverted kid um and so I found my place um really finding acceptance in in being a good athlete and being a good student I really um made that kind of my my teenage years is like, how can I be the best student I can? And, and when I went to Grandview High School in South Aurora, and, and when you go to a school like Grandview, where it's 3000 kids, um, pretty prestigious, privileged, um, both sports, um, so athletics and academics, it's, it's not a question of if you're going to go to college, but where and, and my parents, like I said, being educators, it was always about where are you going to go to school. So really did well in school, did well in sports. Um, and for the most part, stayed out of trouble, which is, it's really fascinating that I'm in the work I'm doing now. But um, yeah, like I said, I, I kind of stayed out of trouble and, and, you know, growing up. So that's kind of my, my teenage years. Um, yeah. And then you, then you went up to University of Northern Colorado. And I think this is kind of interesting because you majored in mathematics. Is that right? Were you, were you planning on becoming a teacher as well? So I started at the University of Denver my freshman year. Okay. Um, I got a pretty significant scholarship to go there and, and DU is a really good school. And so it was like, you know, let's try it out. And um, great school DU is, the environment, the atmosphere wasn't a good fit for me. Um, and when I was at DU, I really didn't know what I wanted to major in. Um, 
you know, faith, my faith has been a really big part of my life since I was about 15, 16. And so I was like, well, maybe I want to be like a youth pastor. And, and, you know, talking to my dad, he, he taught business and he was like, well, go into finance, make a lot of money. And so I had no idea, you know, I'm 18 and I'm naive and whatever. And so listen to my dad and I started taking some business classes at DU, hated it. They had a great business school. I hated it. Um, I took a sociology class at DU and my eyes were just like, it was deer in headlights. I just, some of the stuff we were talking about, you know, considering once again, privilege and racism and, and various aspects of just the world. And I was like, what, what is going on? And my world was kind of rocked. And I also had to, it was a course where you also had to volunteer. So you had to take the class and then you had to volunteer. And so I actually was tutoring kids in the housing projects in Denver and just really once again, rocking my world. So I left DU my freshman year, went to Northern Colorado, um, still not knowing what I want to do, but like this, once again, this trajectory of like, well, maybe I want to work with like at-risk kids. And so I was like, well, how do I do that? Like, I know once again, just naive of like, well, how do you work with those kids? And I was talking to a friend and, and uh, even my parents, like being a teenager and both parents being educators, I was like, I will never teach, never, ever, ever, ever. And then I got to UNC and I had a friend that was going through their education program. And he's like, well, be a teacher. And I was like, okay, you know, maybe I could be an inner city teacher. And, and so he was like, do math. Like you're really good at math. And um, so I did, I majored in math and I was already behind because I had transferred. So I didn't go through the education program because they were like, well, math teachers are so needed, especially inner city why don't you just go through the math program and then you can get into like an alternative licensure and maybe like get your master's or whatever. So I did that. I graduated in four years, got my degree in math. Um, yeah. So, it, and I, I actually minored in sociology and then that took me on a trajectory. I got a teaching job right out of, right out of, um, out of school. And I was at, uh, at a school in Park Hill in Denver, North Park Hill. And it's, you know, a traditional African-American community. Um, and now doing the work I'm doing, it's a traditional blood gang neighborhood community in Denver. And our school is a charter school, is a new charter school and 95% kids of color, 95% free and reduced lunch. Um, and I was just thrown to the wolves. I had no educational background. Like, like I said, I didn't go through the educational program. So I didn't student teach. I didn't take any like classroom management classes. It was like, here you go. And so I had a trial by fire, but I loved it. So that was kind of my initial job. But, but then you then you went and got your your master's um, in urban ministry. Tell us a little bit about that. What is urban ministry? Yeah. Um, so like I said, my faith's been a big part of my life um, since I was about 16. And so I'm teaching and I'm realizing um man, I love these young people so much. I really do. But there's so much more to life than just like how much math, you know, especially for my young people who are like, uh, we call it survival mode. They're in survival mode 24 yeah. seven. Right? Yep. And so, yep. um, so they're like, well, where am I going to get my next meal? And, you know, my brother was just shot or my dad or mom is in prison. And so it's like, and then I'm expected to get them to learn algebra, which once again, it's good. But at the end of the day, they're like, I don't care, you know? So all that to say, I mean, I was going to seminary at the time and um, 
and I was really feeling a call to like work um, in a faith-based environment with the same population. And so I actually, I kind of um, went to a couple different seminaries. I was thinking about counseling and I didn't do that. And so urban ministry really is like, how do we do ministry? How do we, um, you know, provide faith-based um, ministry to, to specifically young people in urban contexts? And how do you do it in a really honoring and glorifying way that's um that doesn't do more harm than good and so that's kind of my master's was in urban ministry and I've been a part of um it's called the Vuli. it was previously called the DeVos Urban Leadership Initiative it's another kind of urban ministry based leadership program so I've been a part of a couple of kind of urban programs but yeah that's that's my urban ministry so th then you took the leap to get out of teaching and go into serving um at risk youth is is that fair to say that um, yeah i mean i what we say and a, a lot of the terminology we're trying to move it because at risk is a really demeaning term but for people it helps them understand right mm -hmm. but we don't call our young people at risk we call them high risk at risk is a kid that's like they're kind of dabbling right they're on the they're on the border of like maybe getting in trouble but like their life trajectory could like really change um that's not our young people. Our young people are high risk. They've already done it. They are the risk. They've, they've been there. They've done it. They've been gang involved. They've committed crimes. They've, they're, they've been in and out of juvenile detention centers. So our young people really aren't at risk. They're high risk. But back to your thing. Yeah, I taught for five years. I taught um, at that school in Park Hill for four. I taught at an alternative school for two. Actually, I taught for six years. Um, so I taught the alternative school for two um, all the while I was volunteering with a couple organizations. And when I took the jump from education, I became the chaplain at um, Lookout Mountain Youth Services Center, which is Colorado's long-term uh, committed facility for boys. So this is kind of young men that are um, a little bit older. They've been through the systems, whether that's the Division of Human Services, foster care, They've been to other detention facilities. They've been to maybe treatment facilities. They've been to group homes. Like this is, Lookout's kind of their last shot. This is the state's highest risk young men. Um, and they can be there up until their 21st birthday. And so uh, at the time, the average age young person I was working with was like 17 and a half. Um, so anyways, I was the chaplain there when I took that jump, yeah. And what was that like? What was it like being in that facility? You're pretty much there on a daily basis, correct? What was it like being in there? Um, Give us a picture of what these kids go through on a daily basis at, at that facility. At that facility, for sure. I mean, my young people have changed my life. So that that place, I still go to that place um, on a weekly basis. It's sacred to me. It really is. It's a sacred space. Um, you know, Lookout's been on the news from, for some really negative things that have happened, but um, I just, there's so much beauty in that space. So anyways, um, a, young, a young man at Lookout, and they have, they've actually renamed it to Calm, but a young man at that facility, like I said, we've had young, young people that are 14 and they, they're going to serve what we call juvenile life. They'll be there till their 21st birthday. So you're talking about a young person that might have on average, the average commitment when I was there was about two and a half years. So you wake up, um, you do what they call hygiene. So you, you know, brush your teeth, shower, whatever. Um, 
you get ready for the day and then you they have to pat you down before you go to school. So they pat you down and you typically you're in a room, you're in a cell. I mean, this is jail. This is, this is youth prison. Mm-hmm. So you're in a cell by yourself or with one other person. So they're, you're wearing the clothes of the facility. They're patting you down. They're checking your shoes before you go to school, making sure you don't have any contraband. So you're making sure you don't have any drugs or notes or, you know, weapons or whatever. So then you, you know, you're escorted with, you know, you're on a pod or a unit and they had at the time I was there five units, there was 150 kids there. So you get escorted with your unit to school, you get walked there at about 730. And then you go to school like a normal teenager, except, you know, in the school, you have 10 security guards, you have um, maybe only like six, seven kids a class, you're taking normal classes. Um, math, science, you know, English, uh, social studies, they have credit recovery. If you graduate, I mean, you can get your GED there. If you graduate, they have post-secondary options like construction or screen printing, or um, they have a barbering program, which a lot of my young men have gone through and actually gotten licensed as barbers. So um, a lot of post-secondary options. So you go to school, 7.30 to about 2.30, and then at about 2.30, they do treatment groups. So they Each young man at that facility has a therapist. They have to see their therapist weekly, and then they have to be a part of treatment groups. So those could look like drug and alcohol or negative peer associations or um, transition or healthy sexuality or victim empathy. And so they have to go through these therapeutic groups and they, they rotate them, I think, quarterly. And you have to pass a certain number of groups before they'll, they'll kind of let you, um, transition from that facility so anyway 7 30 to like 2 30 they're at school 2 30 3 30 they're in group then at 3 30 they'll go back to the unit um they'll go into their room they'll get locked down for about an hour um the team on the unit will debrief what happened in school hey was there a fight or who was struggling or who needs extra support tonight or hey you need to be aware of this or that and then at about 4.30, they start like recreation and they start um, dinner. So you'll have a unit that'll go to rec. They might play basketball or softball or go work out or whatever. So they'll do rec. Each unit will rotate, do rec. And then other units will go to dinner. Um, and then they'll kind of throughout that night from about 4.30 to 8.30, it's, it's rec, it's dinner. And then it's like they might have a little bit of leisure time on the unit and then they're getting ready for bed and then they wake up and do it all over again. So the hard part for you or the, the, there's good parts in probably really difficult parts. What are, when someone, a young man, I don't know, is it graduates from that program? Um, is that yeah. a good, good day? Is that a, I know some of them go on to do great things and some of them, uh, I know yesterday you had a hard day. Um, yeah. is, is, tell us a little bit about that, the end result of the program. Yeah. Um, the hard thing is that uh, the young people get supported at the facility. Um, the facilities aren't perfect. You know, there, there needs to be a lot of what we're saying of juvenile justice reform, reform, just like there needs to be a lot of prison reform. There needs to be a lot of justice reform, criminal justice reform in our country. Um, so the facility is not perfect, but they do get supported. Like I said, they have a therapist, they have a parole officer, which um, while they are there at the facility is called their client manager. So they are coming in on a monthly basis. 
meeting with the young person, they're meeting with their therapist, they're meeting with the family and any other support, and they meet monthly to talk about, hey, how's it going? You know, they have a level system at the facility. So it's like, if you do certain things, you can move up in levels, which gets you more incentives. Um, And so they have the highest phase would be an eagle, and they have basically four phases. And if you're an eagle, you can have like a TV in your room. and, And you get a lot of, once again, you get a lot of perks with that. So you have a client manager, you have support. Um, and then, you know, as, as young people are about, um, I mean, we start thinking about about six months out, but really it's about three months out. We're, we're talking about transition. What's transition look like? Where are you going to go? Some young people, they can't immediately parole because of the severity of their crime. They have to step down to a lesser secure facility. So it might be, hey, we're going to go. What do we think about this facility? Do we think that's a good option for you? If they can parole home, um, then we're talking about transition of like, what are you going to need to be successful when you transition? The hard thing is that you go from, let's say a young person is at a facility like that for three years, and then they transition. And then, and here's the thing is that um, I try to educate people. Our young people, there, there's a stereotype that our young people don't want to change. Like if they're gang involved or they're, um, they have addiction, right? They're addicted to drugs or whatever the circumstances, they don't want to change. They're just bad kids. No, I don't, I don't believe that personally. I don't believe in good and bad people. I believe all people are good. We just make poor decisions based upon a lot of different things. And so the stereotypes is that our young people don't want to change. They really do. Um, they might tell you they don't want to change, but they do. And that goes back to their families. Like a lot of these families are once again, they're in survival mode. They might be living in poverty or um, they might be getting involved themselves or struggling with addiction or incarcerated themselves. And so you're going to send a kid back to a community that might not be as supportive, not that they don't want to be, they just don't know how. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, they'll have their parole officer and they might have a therapist in the community and they might have a mentorship, which is stuff that we do. Um, but on average, a young person has to complete six months of parole. Well, after that six months is over, everybody's gone. Um, so and, they're, you, and they're back in the community that kind of yeah. helped them get there in the first place. Yeah. Is that so fair have, to say? Is that? Yeah, it is. And, and so you, you're talking about like three years of their life where they're like really intensely monitored and supported. Once again, it's not perfect, but then they're back in this environment and and a lot of these communities, once again, I don't want to demonize the communities. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the communities are plagued by, once again, what I, you know, what I try to help people understand is like systemic issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so with these systemic issues, you get marginalization and you get poverty. And with those two things, with poverty, mental health, trauma, and systemic policies that continue to marginalize these communities, what you get is crime. Yeah. And so I don't want to demonize these communities. These right. communities are beautiful, beautiful communities, um, deeply cultural values and hardworking people. And um, but you get you do have crime and you have addiction. And, and so our young people are put back in an environment where um, they are continued to be re-traumatized or they're continued to be. Um, uh, you know, asked to like continue to do the things they did before, or mm-hmm. they go back to the community and they can't get a job because people don't want to hire them because, you know, now they have a record. Um, 
you know, there's so many things that are, there's so many barriers that our young people face from getting sustainable employment that then they're like, well, I could go sell drugs and I can make a thousand dollars today. Why am I going to go work and make $15 an hour, you know? And so it's, it's that pull too. Um, so yeah, it, it, to your point, it's when they leave the facility, I always want them to leave, but at the same time, there's this real nervousness about how are our young people going to be given the resources and the support they need to be successful. And that's the thing that our country is really lacking right now. And I think part of it, once again, is to this demonization of like, well, they don't want to work hard or, you know, there's like a lot of trigger words of like, well, they just want to live off of welfare or unemployment. And I'm like, it's just the farthest thing from the truth. Yeah. Our young people work really hard, really, really hard. Like I said, the odds are just really stacked against them. So, yeah. So I, I, you know, I used to say this all the time. A lot of our young people are the product of their environment. And, you know, my environment was much like yours. My dad was a teacher and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And, you know, I, I never even dreamt of having to go through any of those problems that you just described. And a young person coming up through those problems in those situations, it's, it's really hard for them to break, break away from that, isn't it? Oh, my gosh. It's, and that's the thing that people don't understand. They're kind of like, in the faith-based community, a lot of people are like, well, just pray harder or like go to church more or whatever. And it's like, that's not solving their problems. Mm -hmm. And for the lay person that comes from privilege, especially people that have kind of quote unquote made it out, they sometimes can be the worst because they're like, well, I did it. I worked hard and I got out. And I'm just like, that's not everybody's story. And what we try to really educate people on is like the, really the impact. Trauma is a word that's um, almost overused right now, but it is a very real thing. And what happens to a, the brain of a young person when they're traumatized is unbelievable. So to tell them just try harder, their brain literally can't, can't do it. rewire itself right now. Mm-hmm. And 50% of the young people that we work with, they are clinically diagnosed with PTSD. The same PTSD that our war vets come back with, my young people have that. And so the same empathy that we showed at war vets, we should still show it to them. Mm -hmm. And the same resources that they need when they come back, which a lot of them don't get, we still need to provide it. It's the same thing for my young people. It's the same exact thing. And so when we look at war vets that struggle with addiction or homelessness or whatever, it's the same thing my young people struggle with because they are in a lot of times warlike environments through emotional, physical abuse, or through violence on the streets, or through addiction that they see. So um, there's a study called the ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences, and it really, it speaks to the trauma that a person has experienced as a child. And it's 10 questions. And the, the more yeses, it's a yes and no question each time, the more yeses you say, and the higher your score is, because it's a one through 10 scale, the more trauma you've been through. And the majority of our young people, they've experienced eight, nine, or 10 of those. And me, when I take that test, I can maybe say one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? And so it's just, yeah, the experience, to your point, the experiences that I went through don't even compare to what my young people go through on a daily basis. Amazing. I, I want to go back into the trauma just a little bit, because I, I don't think this is one of the things I've had to learn. And it's been completely eye-opening to me. But the PTSD from trauma, and I want people to really understand what you just said. I want to go back over it. Yeah. 
the PTSD that war veterans have is the same PTSD that many of our youth have because of some type of trauma that they've gone through in their youth. Can you kind of describe some of those types of trauma? Oh, yeah. And we talk about complex trauma. So we, um, there's layers to trauma. Um, you can't get diagnosed really with PTSD unless it's like a absolutely tragic, horrific one-time event. You can, right? But a lot of our young people, they're repeated trauma. So it's not like they just, um, you know, it's not like they just saw their mom uh, shoot heroin in front of them, right? Like this might be every day they're seeing this, right? So it's repeated. It's complex because it's layered, mm-hmm. right? Like I had a, I'll, I'll give an example. I had a young man who I'm talking to him and he goes, um, once again, on a faith-based perspective, he says to me, Preston, because I'm the chaplain at this facility at the time. So I'm seeing as the pastor and he goes, where was God when my mom at nine years old gave me meth? Wow. So you're talking about complex trauma because not only at nine years old is he being required to smoke it but his mother the caretaker the one who's supposed to emotionally physically support him is the one giving it to him Mm -hmm. so you can only imagine what that does to a young person's brain and he was so mentally ill you know he's dealing with such mental health that he had to go back and forth between Pueblo Psychiatric Hospital because he was always trying to uh, commit suicide because he just couldn't deal with the trauma he experienced. I mean, we have young people that um, put in cages when they're kids. Uh, we have young people that uh, severely abused by parents or foster parents. Um, I had a young man I was really close with that, you know, did watch his father get killed in front of him. Um, I had, you know, young people that were, I, I can't tell you how many of my young people have been shot, almost died have shot other people, have been stabbed, um, you know, so, so it runs the gamut between abuse and violence and drug addiction and all these things. I mean, sexual abuse, how many of our young men, not just young women, our young women, it's, um, it's astronomical trafficking and all that, but our young men being sexually abused, raped, molested, specifically with family members. Um, I remember a young man where the mother was convinced that he had been sexually assaulted by her boyfriend. And this is really tough, about six, three, huge young man. And we tried deeply to like really get him to open up and he just never would. And now he's in prison for 40 years. And, you know, so it's those things that like, once again, I've never in my life had to even think about experiencing some of these things, but like what it does to a kid's brain or any person, but specifically a kid's brain completely rewires it. There are so many studies, I mean, people could literally just Google a PTS brain versus a normal brain and the scans just show you right there just how astronomically different they look. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's so important for people to understand that. Um, you know, like I said, I didn't, I didn't understand it until, you know, I've had to d- kind of deal with it a little bit. And it's, it's um, the, the sad, the hard part is, and I know you probably deal with this in your own emotions, is the hard part is it's not the kid's fault Yeah. in most of these cases. And you sit there and I, I, you look at you and you look at me and how we grew up and we never even thought about any of yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. And yeah. to see a kid have to deal with that yeah. at such a young age and they're so innocent. And, and that's the hard part that I think people really, really need to understand. Yeah. 
Yeah, like, I mean, back to my initial statement, I think people sometimes look at me and they're like, you enable young people. And I'm like, no, I never do. You know, I tell them all the time, like, and they know, they will tell you straight out, I made a bad decision. You know, I'll, I'll give a great example. One of my guys who just so proud of him, he makes me so emotional. I mean, he's a barber. He just had a baby. He's being the best father he can be um he's still with the mother of his child um you know he accidentally was in a car accident and somebody passed away and it haunts him but the what we call is restorative justice he himself about a year and a half ago he's he was out on parole he went to the mother because this was his best friend he went to the mother of his best friend who passed away and he just said i'm so sorry like i made a bad decision that night and, and I just, I, I want you to forgive me. And two weeks ago, they had a, a five-year memorial for this young man that passed away. And he was the first one invited and the whole family. So you're talking about the, the young man that committed the act that got this young, this other young man to be killed and the family's embracing and that's restorative justice. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for us to say like, it's our young kids fault. Yeah. They make poor choices. They really do. And, and we talk about it all the time. I'm like, hey, you know, how are you forgiving yourself? How are you also asking for forgiveness? It's victim empathy, right? It's understanding that you have victimized a community, not just one person, but a community. And how are you recognizing the way you victimize other people? Mm-hmm. But in order for our young people to stop victimizing people, they have to understand how they are victims and out of their victimization, they have hurt others. So it's because of the trauma, it's because of the abuse, it's because of these things that happened onto them that they have made poor decisions, right? And so we wanna stop this pattern of victimization and we want to get them out of it. And so it's not their fault. They have to recognize that they have been victimized. What is their fault is making better decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, but in order to do that, they have to get mentally healthy, right? We have to help heal the trauma. We have to help with the mental health, right? So many of our young people suffer from depression and anxiety, severe depression and anxiety. So it's like, how are they getting healed with, so that they don't keep victimizing people, right? So we're, that's what we're trying to do is like, we want you to get healing so you can be transformed and transform your family and community. And I, I think it's hard for some of these young people sometimes to get out of that cycle because I think once they do something, now they start living in shame. Mm. And that shame piece just kind of keeps going over and over. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough anyways. I'm, you know, and that shame piece is one of the major obstacles I think young people have in getting out of that cycle that you just talked about. Would you agree with that? That's a great point. And that's a, not a great word, but it's a great word to use. And I think the shame creates hopelessness. Yeah. Right. Um, No doubt. So my father, or not my father, my hero is a guy named Father Gregory Boyle. He's out in LA and he runs the most successful gang intervention program in the world. He's written two books. He's, go check him out. But he says, you will never find a hope-filled gang member. Gang members are always hopeless, Mm -hmm. right? So in that shame and also the inability, what I talk a lot, once again, survival mode, I share with people a lot that like our kids can't see past today mm-hmm. where, like I said, at the beginning, when I'm in school and when I'm 14, it's not about 
are you going to graduate high school or go to college? It's where are you going to go to college? From day one, I step foot in Grandview. Yeah. You yeah. know that your GPA matters. Yeah. So I'm thinking five years ahead. Yeah. My yeah. young people think about today. Yeah. And so it's this sense of hopelessness where they're like, Preston, I don't have hope for yeah. me at 20. Are you serious? Mm-hmm. And this young man that passed away, who's like a little brother to me, it was this mentality of like, Preston, that I don't have hope for my future. Yeah. I really don't. And, and I tell people a lot regarding this young man, like the damage had been done at 13, 14 years old. Mm-hmm. The trauma he went through right at that age, it was so much, so fast in so many different instances. He was stabbed. His grandfather passed away. He was an incredible athlete, was already getting scouted at like 13 for football, breaks his ankle, bedridden for like six months. Um, all of, His dad's not there, you know? Um, all of these things happening at once for a 13, 14-year-old, damage had been done. His brain's rewired and he's like, and so even though he wanted different, I have videos of him sharing how he's like, I want to open up a barbershop for at-risk kids. Like he has, his dreams were for different, but it was this hopelessness of like, I don't think I can do it. Wow. That's, I mean, that's unbelievable. Uh, let's, let's get in. Cause we can kind of continue what we're talking about with you explaining what you're doing now. And you're the co-founder of fully liber- liberated youth. Um, yep. And it's a new thing that you have, pretty recently just started. And I want you to explain a little bit about that. I'll just, I'm going to say this, Preston desires to see a just, equitable, inclusive, and anti-racist society, one where his youth are leading the way forward. And that's kind of your mantra. And I just want you to explain what fully liberated youth is and how you started this and, and, and what your mission and goal is with this. Oh, I mean, we could talk for hours. I know. Let me, I know. Let me try and be concise. Um, Like I said, my young people have changed my life. They've changed my perspective on life. Um, You know, like I said, there there are systemic things um, that have happened in our country that continue to happen. And um, why did we start Fully Liberated Youth? because we want our young people yeah like i said that we want them to lead the way forward we we believe that they are the most incredible this young man that passed away i tell everybody he is the most charismatic person i may have ever or will ever meet and he's being demonized by the media and and you know it's not okay so i'm not going to say that's okay it's not okay and so what we're trying to do his family and those that know him it's like we're trying to change the narrative he was a father of two kids incredible father, incredible father, incredible friend. He would give you the shirt off his back. Um, We want those young people to not die in the streets. We don't want them in prison forever. And we want them to radically change our nation and they can. And so what we want to do is come in in kind of this multifaceted way. And that's, like I said, first step is healing. Our young people need to be healed from the trauma they've experienced. So, you know, one of the first things is therapy. We have licensed therapists, even focused on like EMDR, trauma-specific therapy. Um, we have mentors. Mentorship is a huge thing for all people. I'm such an advocate of, you know, I have multiple mentors. Um, our young people just need positive, supportive people in their life. So how do we build this community of healing around them? 
Um, and then from there, it's resourcing them. Once again, our young people just lack, they've been under-resourced. So um, how are we not getting them jobs, but careers? Our young people don't need jobs. Like I said, a 15-hour job is not going to do it for a little bit, but they'll go sell drugs. They'll go rob a house. I mean, they're, they're just going to make money. Yeah. yeah. So we need them to get careers and careers that are um, attainable. So how are we resourcing them with whether that's finding them housing or clothing or um, careers or pro-social activities? So it's this, uh, we call it wraparound services, providing holistic needs. Um, but the other piece of like anti-racist and equitable, and like I said, I think, you know, it's easy for, and once again, I'm speaking from a man of privilege and yeah, I'm speaking too. from a white man. It's easy for a white man of privilege to, look at our young people and just, like I said, say, just work harder or racism doesn't exist or these things. And, and I'm just here to say really clearly and not to like, I don't want to argue with people, but I'm just spend time with my young people, spend time um, in these communities and you'll be given a different perspective of understanding how systems have oppressed my young people in their communities and their families, you know, how, um, just so many different things that once again, we could speak for hours, but how it hasn't been equitable for them, you know, and how, once again, I was born into a place, the way my skin looks and the way uh, of privilege that my family has, I've never had to ask these certain questions. And no. so we want to create a world where policies help our young people and don't hurt them. When a young man gets out of jail and he is given an ankle monitor he didn't choose it. And then they say, this is adult. This isn't juvenile. But when the adult system says, now you have to pay $500 a month for that ankle monitor. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. And then you're saying, um, also, you need a job. And the young person is saying, well, I have a felony. Who's going to hire me? It's a violent felony. Who's going to hire me? But then if you don't pay your ankle monitor, then you're going to go back. Well, how am I supposed to pay for my ankle monitor? Right. It's like these systemic things that people don't understand that happens um, that we need to change. You know, even like the public defender system, our young people, uh, the D.A. is so good in every county. The best attorneys go to the D.A. and they railroad our young people, our young people, they get demonized and they have a public defender that even if they're good, overworked. And so our young people have no shot with the justice system and the young people are required then to take a deal because if they come in and say you're going to get 20 years or if you sign here you'll get five well the young person knows if I take this to trial they're going to demonize me and talk about all about my record all about my gang involvement all about my history they're going to call me an urban terrorist which happens all the time the jury's never going to believe me so I better sign this so now not only did I sign on the dotted line, now I have a felony. The DA, their record is 99% conviction rate. You know, and so there's certain systemic things that we want to see change. And so not only do we want to help with the healing, we want to help with like legislation and these other things. And I think the last thing is to the career piece, we're trying to help our young people be business owners and homeowners. And so 
we're trying to start our own businesses. Like we want to start a barbershop where we can hire young people, Awesome. you know, and they can provide a service, get a career, and then maybe they can branch off and start their own barbershop. So we want to start social enterprises that where we can directly hire our young people. Um, and the last thing is, like I said, home ownership, uh, things like gentrification and, and these things harm our, our young people's communities. And, and the way to reverse that is like home ownership. And once again, like when we talk about systemic wealth, we're like my family, I'm a, I'm privileged. My family's privileged from home ownership that's been passed down. Our young people, a lot of their families have never owned homes. Yeah. So that wealth can't be passed down. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to like, how can we set them up to be homeowners, business owners? So anyways, um, I think that's the most concise way is like, just how do we, how do we help them and empower them to to change the worlds they live in and, and our nation. So, and, and I'm just going to go a little bit over your clients. Um, 50% yep. of your clients have PTSD. Yep. 99% of your clients have mental health health issues. Yep. 97% of your clients have had some kind of contact with the human services. And 85% of your clients have been in with gang involvement. Th- those are statistics that just don't give them much of a chance does it no is that a good way to say it i'm not trying to it's a good way to say it and that's why we're trying to change it yeah so in in the mental health let let me ask you this preston how much does drugs play into triggering mental health issues Mm, that's a great question um no it's the other way it's self-medication okay so our young people almost always are self-medicating because of mental health struggles. Okay. So um, there's, a, there's a woman who's a scholar in um, gang-involved young people, and her name's Georgia Leap. She's out of UCLA. She talks a lot about self-medication for gang members, where it's like, you know, I saw my best friend killed in front of me. I don't have the coping skills. I don't have the support system. I don't have a therapist who I can really talk about how this traumatized me. So what do I do? I go to drinking. I go to smoking. I go to popping pills. I go to robbing people. I go to stealing cars and and then I get involved in criminal activity. I mean, a young man I work with right now, he can speak very clearly to how his trauma influenced criminal activity and drug activity, where he Mm -hmm. says, I'm at a party. I'm, I'm like 14. Best friends killed in front of me. So what do I do? I'm in a gang-involved neighborhood. My best friend's killed in front of me. Now I'm always carrying a gun and I'm always using drugs because I don't know how to cope with it. Yeah, yeah. So we talk about self-medication. Um, you know, uh, meth is an upper. For ADD and ADHD patients, you know, we're giving them typically, actually we're giving them uppers, right? So we're giving them like Adderall well, a lot of kids on meth, they're self-medicating for the ADD or ADHD, and they aren't receiving the proper medication they need, right? So it's so much of the mental health is being self-medicated um, through, like I said, through drug usage. Um, and, and once again, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I'm not the expert on this. Um, but the majority of mentalists is not triggered by drugs in my opinion and there's kind of two schools of thought my opinion is that 
trauma triggers mental illness. Okay. Yeah. And the, it kind of always goes back to that trauma piece, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think we kind of touched on this a little bit, but the trauma piece in most cases that you deal with was of no fault of the kid. Mm, yeah. No, no fault. It's, it's mostly the fault of the adults in that kid's life. The adult in the neighborhood, and, and that's where, you know, I don't, because a lot of people go back to family, you know, like it's the family's fault. I don't like going there either. Um, yeah. The right. family is just similar to my young people. And yeah. like I said, for specifically, like, let's take a community like Five Points in East Denver. So traditionally African-American community. Um, in the 50s, 60s, it's known as the Harlem of the West. Well, that community is uh, has been oppressed for decades. I mean, they're 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 the community of redlining, where African Americans couldn't live. They had to live in that section of the of the city. They couldn't live outside of it. So you redline them, and and then you know drugs come in, and then the war on drugs come in, and now you're taking a lot of the the parents out of the house, incarcerating them, and so now. A young person is a product of systemic issues like redlining and like drugs and war on drugs and all these things, three strikes law and all of these actual policies. And so then the young people, it's because of those things that the family gets traumatized and the family now has mental illness and the family has addiction or gang involvement. And then yes, the family out of their trauma and pain because they didn't get resourced or get healing they are victimizing their children, but it's not the fault of the family, you know? So once again, it's this cycle yeah. and, and it's helping people. I think it's really, it's, it's trying to help people grow in empathy. Oh, if empathy want, is huge yeah. with me. I, I think yep. to me, and I've said this on almost every podcast, to be honest with you, that empathy is the strongest word in English language and our country needs so much more of it. Um, it it's, it, there's a difference between empathy and sympathy. Empathy makes you act. It makes you put yourself in their shoes. And when you can do that, then you're going to actually act on it. Yep. Sympathy, I'm just going to feel sorry for you and yeah. kind yep. of go away, you know, yeah. and yeah. and it's, it's, it's huge. That word is huge. And I'm going to go over uh, one of your philosophies with fully liberated youth. It says, we believe that we are called to be fully ourselves, but not to exist only for ourselves. Explain mm. that a little bit. I think that's really powerful. Say it one more time. We believe that we are called to be fully ourselves, but not to exist only for ourselves. Yeah. I mean, um, so with empathy, we believe in complete vulnerability. Um, we want to create an environment where our young people can be fully themselves. You, you are, be yourself. You are loved unconditionally. I mean, when I talk to my young people about like, and this isn't to pat myself on the back, but when I say like, why do we have such a good relationship? They say, I trust you. And then I say, how did we build that? And they say, you never judge me and you love me unconditionally. So we want to create this environment where they are themselves. And the thing that I've, that really has um, drawn me so much to my young people, once again, to break stereotypes is, and this is really unfortunate, but no community or no people has accepted me as myself more than my young people. Not the church, not friends, 
a lot of family, like I, I can be fully pressed in with my young people and we'll crack jokes or whatever. And they might make fun, but like, they love me and I love them. And so we want to create this atmosphere where it's like, you are yourself, you're not judged and you are loved for being yourself. Now the flip though, is we don't exist just for ourselves, right? We're selfless. Right. So it's once again, in our world, I just think we have specifically with men, like we have this ego struggle and we all deal with it, right? Like I want to be the guy and I want to be on, you know, the person in power and I want to have the money. And it's this ego struggle we have. And we're saying like, specifically for us as therapists or mentors or leaders, it's like, but it's not about me. Right. It's about our young people. It's about our world. It's about our communities. And if I make it about me, then we're, we're done for mm-hmm. it's this thing isn't going to work because yep. then it's, Oh, it, I want, you know, it's about Preston looking good and Preston being the guy instead of it being about, no, it's about Diego and it's about Cedric and it's about Keen and it's about Jamali and it's about, and it's about Southwest Denver and it's about the East side and it's about Montbello and, and it's about the city of Denver and it's about the nation. Right. So it's, so I, I hope that answers it. No, that's, that's, yeah. that's powerful. That's, you know, I have a saying that, you will find your purpose when your purpose is greater than yourself. And I, I think when the, the best way that I can explain it is when I've helped kids and I haven't helped them on to the level that well, you have. Don't sell yourself short, but yes. But yes. when I have found the best way to help kids like this is to help them figure out a way to serve others. Mm-hmm. Because when they can figure out a way to serve others and their purpose is greater than themselves, yeah. Yep. Now that shame piece yeah. is now starting to leave. Yeah, that's great. Because I'm figuring out, man, yeah, this is cool. I'm helping someone else. It gives them yeah. a self-satisfaction. It gives them a purpose. It gives them a self-worth. Yeah. And it kind of beats that per- it beats that shame piece down, down, down. And um that so you know, I, that's that's kind of how I oh, look at great. it. So when I read that, um, but not exist only for ourselves. To me, that's what it's about, because if you can get these kids to think, well, maybe it, maybe I could be the one who helps the kid coming behind me. Maybe I can be the one that helps him. Or, you know, you said a lot of your kids like to be barbers. Well, why is that? Well, because when they're a barber, they're serving somebody. Mm-hmm. They're doing a service for somebody. They're, they're yeah. cutting their hair. They're making yeah. someone else feel better. And they're, and they're doing something that's successful and that's something right. that they haven't felt. Exactly. Lot, right. Yeah. And so no, you're, I mean, you're hundred percent right. And I think even to your point, that's why once again, even in our mission statement, we talk about empower. We want to empower. It's, it's yes. Preston can't do it all. My colleagues can't do it all. Um, we have to empower our young people to do it. So to your point of like the purpose of giving mm-hmm. them of like, you are the one to do it. When, when this young man was killed, um, the first young person I ever worked with uh, in a facility was about 11 years ago, and he's in prison, and um, he is as close to a little brother as I had, and he called me from prison, and he lectured me in a really good way for about 20 minutes, and he just said, Preston, like, we're going to lose a lot more, but he said, even if we, like, change one, we've done it, yeah. and he was like, And I just kept telling him, I was like, hey, you're going to change the world. And we have to keep telling them that. They're like, 
So that's why I call them. I'll call them and say, Hey, I'm working with this kid. Can you talk to this kid? Yeah. yeah. You know? And they're like, Oh, for sure. And so, you know, I'm always trying to tell them like, you're going to be the one to change the next kid or to change your community. And, and, and I'm always trying to speak that because I want them, like you said, to get rid of shame and have hope and purpose for their lives moving forward for sure. That's, that's unbelievable. And so, so, one of the things you guys want with your with your organization that you're running now, um, you want kids to have freedom. And I just wrote down some of them, but it, mm. you said you want them freedom from negative effects of trauma, which we've mm -hmm. talked about, cycles mm -hmm. of poverty, which we've talked mm -hmm. about, the survival mode thing. We talked a little bit about it, but I, I don't think people really understand how much so many kids are in survival mode. You you mentioned it. They don't really look five years down the road of going to graduate college. They're looking to get through today. And I think that's um, something that's really, and here's, here's the one that I, um, the victimization, can you just expand on that a little bit more, what kids are dealing with, with that? Yeah. Um, well, like I said, we just want them free from these cycles of being victimized and victimizing others. Um, and for each young person, that might be different. I mean, because the cycle of victimization might come from their family. So it's like, how do we help them understand how to set good boundaries with family members so they don't continue to be victimized, right? Um, a good example of that was a young man. Uh, one of my colleagues was at a, a birthday party for one of his young men. And so it's the whole family of this young man's over there. And the young man is like, you know, the family started to bring out alcohol and the young man was like, hey, 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 like, you remember what happened last time? Right. And so something happened. He's like, we're not doing alcohol tonight. And so it's like they're learning these boundaries of like, we don't want to continue to live in this victimization. So it might be with family. Um, it might be if they have the opportunity to move out of the community or the environment that they're in because the community is victimizing them, whether they're you know, this young man that passed away, like he's getting shot at every day before he passed away. So it's, it's this constant, like, you know, maybe it's um, drugs are always at the house or drugs are in the community or the gang involvement in the community. And so it's, can they separate themselves from that? Um, is it the, you know, the victimization of, um, uh, maybe it's even sexual trauma for like some of our young women, like getting out of an abusive relationship right? And the codependency that comes with relationships. And we, I think a lot of us know this. So it's helping them. How do you break out of that cycle? So, you know, it's really helping them to see what they're going through, helping them to, to admit what they're going through. And then it's saying, how are you going to, how are we helping them? But really they've got to make that decision of like using tools and skills to, to remove themselves or get out of the victimization that they're experiencing. And we, we just want them free because if they aren't free from victimization, they're not free from trauma, their mental health keeps going. That's where once again, substance use and all these other things keep coming. So if we can get them out of the victimization, hopefully we can prevent further trauma down the road. And how much do you talk about with these, with these young people, the power of choice? Oh, I mean a lot. And that's once again, that's a stereotype that a lot of people, like I said, with the enabling piece of like, you just, you know, you just enable them and you don't tell them that they have a choice. No, I tell them all the time. They have a yeah, choice. Now, yeah. now, sometimes once again, their choices are limited, really limited. Um, but it's really helping them to understand they do have a choice. And, and a lot of them do know that they, they're like, 
I should have chose different. They'll say that. They'll call me from prison. 10 years. They'll have 10 years in prison. I should have chose different. Um, and so it's helping us, you know, with them walking through what are your choices, right? You can choose this, this negative choice and talking about natural consequences. So if you choose this, what's going to happen? Is that what you want? Now, they might only have two choices and it, it might be one's a tiny bit better, but then saying, okay, well, don't you think this is a little bit better, right? Um, let's not go to that party tonight right? Let's not go downtown to that club tonight. Um, let's not go sleep with that girl tonight. Um, let's not go drive around with the homies tonight, right? And it might be a daily choice. Let's make small incremental decisions that help us get on a path of health. Um, and a lot of times we have to walk through that with our young people where they're calling us or texting us on a daily basis of like, I don't know what to do. You know, it's that survival mode. And so we have to walk with them on a daily, but um, there is power in choice and we let them know, but it might not be the same ample choices that you and I have. And the more, the, the more positive choices they make, the more confidence in themselves they get. And that beats that, that beats that shame piece down a little bit each time as well. Yeah. yeah. I think the only thing with that is that sometimes building resiliency because they might make really healthy choices for three years. And I'll give you another example, this young man that where he was involved in the car accident that um, that this young, other young man was 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 killed. He contacts me like three weeks ago. And, and he, mind you, he did three years at Lookout long term facility. He paid all of his restitution. He passed uh, parole with flying colors, has a full time job. He gets a notice in the mail that says his license is being revoked. And in that moment, I'm like, oh, man, yeah. because I'm like, is he going to lose the momentum? Mm -hmm. And so we immediately I'm like calling my attorney friends, like, what do we got to do? And he actually just texted me right before this and was like, I met with the judge and they're moving it to 30 days. And I was just like, oh, thank God, because that's something that could derail them. Yeah. Once again, they don't have the privilege. So you revoke his license. How does he get to work? So then maybe he drives without a license. If he gets pulled over, he's going to go back to jail. Right. So it's all these little things, but like, so those positive choices, that's the thing we fear is that one thing that happens that wouldn't happen to a lot of people in privilege. It happens and it derails them. And that's really right. devastating for us. Yeah. I call it triggers. Yep. We have little things that can trigger them back into that cycle yep, really fast. Sure. A, and, yep, and that's, that's the word. That's, um, that's kind of tough to see. Yep. You know, and here's some statistics, and just so people understand, um, this is part past fiscal year. I had 4,083 new juvenile detention admissions in Colorado. Between fiscal year 19 and fiscal year 19, uh, 20, the vision experienced the largest spike in the percentage of new youth committed on violence offenses. 41% of youth were committed for a violent crime, 32% increase in federal uh, fiscal year 20 in the number of you served with committing offenses of homicide and manslaughter. 76% require formal mental health intervention services. 63% have co-occurring treatment needs. 92% require treatment level service for substance abuse and 41% one year. Um, what is it? Re Recidivism. Yeah. Yep. Thank yep. you. Yep. Right. 
can you touch on that a little bit? Those are pretty eye-popping numbers there. Um, yeah. And, and you're making a dent. You're making a dent in any way you can. How else can, how else can we make a dent? Um, you know, so to, to your first question, the numbers, um, we had a, a meeting with Denver Juvenile Probation and um, we've been privileged enough to solidify contracts to where we can serve kids in every judicial district. So in the metro area, every county, kids on probation. And Denver probation alone, we were like, well, how many clients do you have? And they said 300. And then I said, and they said, um, the majority of those are violent offenses and or offenses with a weapon. What we're seeing in Denver um, is a large spike in violent offenses, specifically with younger people. This isn't new. Um, it's a trend we see in bigger cities like Chicago and Los Angeles. I mean, Denver, what I share with people is trends we see in Los Angeles, Denver is really closely to follow behind. So Denver is like mini LA. And I think okay. a lot of people understand how the, the just even transplants like California and Colorado are really related in just the way they trend with things. Um, and that's the same with crime. And so we're seeing so many more young people that are carrying guns that are um, using that gun. And I mean, there's so many complex reasons for that, which then it speaks to once again, the substance use and kind of the, the co-mental health diagnosis, typically that substance use with depression, right? Or PTSD, complex PTSD, anxiety, right? It's like these multiple different diagnoses. And the recidivism rate is super high. And recidivism means like you get out of a facility, you mess up and you go back. And our recidivism rates are high. And, and I think, once again, all of these things, I can't say it's one thing. But recidivism, a lot of it, once again, is the lack of resources and the consistency once they're back. Um, what was your second question, though? Sorry. Um, how can... Oh, how can... How can yeah, how can... How can us, people listen to this podcast, I think the first way to help, help it is to understand it. And that's what this podcast Great. is doing. Yeah. What are some other things that we could do? How can people support your, because you are a nonprofit organization. So how can people support your organization? Well, I think the first thing you said is understanding is like, it's, that's my number one thing. I think um, I, I really want to see people be humble, um, especially in our, our culture and our climate today. There's so many people that just are like deeply aggressive and rooted in their own like ideologies. And I just want people to be humble to say, I don't know it all. Mm -hmm. And I need to learn about this topic of incarceration, or I need to learn about this topic of like Preston saying systemic racism. And a lot of people say it's not a thing and, and that's fine. Maybe take some time to get educated or, you know, what gang violence or addiction or whatever it is, trauma, take time to learn because like you, your word, when we learn, we can grow in empathy. Mm -hmm. My second thing is become friends with people that aren't like you. One of my biggest frustrations is that when we look at our friend groups, or our family, we look alike, we think alike, we, um, make similar incomes, we live in that community, 
it's like, do you have a person that a friend that doesn't look like you or think like you, whether that's a, you're a white man and you have a black or brown friend, or that means that, you know, you are really wealthy and you have a friend that's not as wealthy or you are straight and you have a gay friend or, you know, like, mm-hmm. how are we in friendship with the other that we might be scared of, or we might want to joke about or demonize because then we can grow in empathy too. Right. So friendship and learning helps us grow in empathy and understanding. So I think number one, that for me, if, if everybody were to do that, not that we all have to agree, but if we were to start doing that, gosh, we'd be so close. I think the next thing is um, people ask me all the time, like, how do we help? And, and my young people need everything. I need politicians that are going to like actually think about um, marginalized people, not just themselves. I need attorneys that are willing to do pro bono work to help my young people so they don't have a public defender that's going to get railroaded. I need um, people that can help me in housing because housing in Denver is a crisis. I need um, therapists that can help with addiction or trauma or whatever. Um, You know, our young people, like I said, need careers that don't require a four-year degree or um, advanced schooling. So something that they can move up. Um, We need real estate agents and lenders and people with credit recovery where they can help our young people get into homes. Um, we need coaches to not just coach where they're coaching, but say, let me take some of my time and maybe we start a little league in, in the hood and help these kids. So they don't have to choose gangs or whatever. And so we need educators that can help our kids get GDs and provide free tutoring. I mean, what I tell people is where are you gifted? Where, where are you passionate? Um, some people have money great, we need money, you know, in order to operate, we need money and we need really generous people to come alongside us. Some people don't have money, but they're gifted with like a great skill or a passion. We need your skill and passion. Our young people need that. Um, And so I just don't want people to feel limited, like, well, I can't serve in that capacity because I'm not a therapist or I'm not wealthy or whatever. Like, no, like, our young people just need people that they can talk to too. So do you want to mentor with us? So there's so many ways and, and anybody that's even interested, even if they're questioning it, I would love for them to reach out and, and just see which ways we can partner. But our young people need everything. We need, you know, healthy policies. We need, um, they need more opportunities for businesses. They need um, just more resources. So how do we, how are we providing that? And we can, people who want to help can get a hold of you through your website, right? Fully liberated youth website. Yeah, fully liberated youth.org are, Email is there. You can subscribe. Um, you can email us at info at fullyliberatedyouth.org. I mean, we have an Instagram. Go follow us. We have a Facebook. Go go like us um, or contact you and you can connect me. So, yeah, no doubt. Yeah. So I, I, I know I, I hope you have a little more time because I want to yeah, dive. I want to dive a little bit into you. I, I think it's I. I I do this podcast to help people progress, to help people grow, to help people learn and grow and get better. Mm. And when I look at you in your path from mm-hmm. going from DU, uh, this isn't for me to UNC. I think I found what I wanted to do and it had to do a lot with that class, mm-hmm. but it even goes further back to that. When you talked about your dad teaching mm-hmm. at Hinkley mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. seeing mm-hmm. some of the mm-hmm. stuff that you're mm-hmm. dealing with. Yep. 
what makes a person fully take the risk of realistically you could have had a pretty safe and I don't know I don't know if it's the right word safe but just kind of straight comfort, arrow yeah. comfort life by yeah. going and teaching and, and doing all those things and you could go teach it you know, to right. not an inner city school yeah, and all that. Yeah. And, then, and then you went to an inner city school because you wanted to serve these, these kids. And then you're like, there's something more for me. What, what made you, what makes you tick? Does that, is that a fair <laughs> question to tick? ask? It? Yeah. What makes you oh, do this? Gosh. Oh, God. What makes you have this empathy yeah. and, and makes you take that leap to yeah. go do this? Yeah. Well, I mean, first off, I, there were a lot of my dad's friends that were like, when are you going to stop teaching there and come over here at, you know, this high school or that high school. Yeah. And I just, I couldn't do it. So what makes me tick? Um, I think my faith makes me tick, to be honest. You know, I really, we have a, a line in there and, and I don't have it quoted just because I was in my writing brain, but it's really that I believe I really, with all I have, believe that God wants a different world than what we're living in. And so um, that motivates me to, once again, I see the world my young people live in and I'm like, this isn't, this isn't of God. And so for myself, being the faith man I am, I'm like, God doesn't want this. God wants much more for them. And so how are we going to do that? I think that that's a huge piece. Like I said, my young people have changed my life. Um, I can't say that enough. I've lost 10 kids to this work either killed or overdosed um four have been killed by police officers um that takes a toll and yet i'm at a burial yesterday and i'm telling one of one of his best friends and this young man that passed away he told his best friend like because his best friend was in plumbing he's like you have to get your journeyman's license you have to open up your own business and I, I was talking to this young man yesterday and I said, remember what he told you and you have to do. It. And he goes, it never leaves my head every day. And I think what I told him too, is we have to allow this to motivate us to do better. So every loss um, and, and every success too, because I look at the ones that are succeeding and I just, I just try as much as I can to thank them. And I'm just like, I'm so proud of you. And I'm so privileged to be in your life and to watch what's happening. It's unbelievable. And, um, and so, but for the ones that we've lost, it's like, you know, I'm sitting down with this family of this young man who was killed and we're talking to a civil rights lawyer and we're talking about certain things about the system. And I'm like, this isn't fair. It's not fair. And this family is like deeply grieving. And they're just like, how is our son's legacy going to be left on this? And there's nothing we can do. And so that got me so emotional, but it also gets me like super passion because I'm like, we, and if I don't do it, who's going to do it? Um, and not saying I'm the savior, but I'm just saying like, there's, there's um, a lot of people that want to do really great things, but they don't know, they, maybe they can't get out of that life of comfort because they're so used to it, or maybe they don't know how. And, and like I said, I just, I put it on my young people and I put it on God. I think God's given me this extra measure of passion. I guess people say I burden people with my passion sometimes. And 
but God, you know, like I said, I think he really envisions a world that's different. And um, my young people are the most amazing people in the world. And I wish everybody could meet them. And they, they encourage me to keep going. They tell me I can't stop. So we're not going to stop. And I'm going to ask you these. Uh, I ask every guest who's on my podcast. I ask them these three questions. Um, my book is called The Three P's, Finding Your Purpose, Perspective, and Passion. So my three questions are those. What what is your and you've you've dealt a you've said a lot of it today, but I just want you to really clarify it for the people here. What's your purpose in life? Um, it's twofold. Um, I really think it is to be the best husband and father I can be. Um, I've seen a lot of people do really incredible work, but they they lose the sight of their home. And I never want to be that guy. I never want to get, I mean, one of my mentors is a guy named Jeff Johnson, and he runs a really successful urban ministry called Mile High Ministries. If you don't know it, you need to check it out. But, you know, I think Jeff's in his 60s, and and he said to me um, about six months ago, he just kept asking about my family. And he said, Preston, you don't want to get to my age and do all this great work. And yet you talk to your family, and they're like, you were never there. And I never want that. I, I want to be the husband that's present. I want to be the father that's there at everything. I just, I want to be that guy. So that's number one. I think number two though is um, I want to be the guy that's real and not fake. I don't want to talk about these things like equity and justice and anti-racism and um, empowering people. And yet I'm a hypocrite out here, like really doing it for myself. So I really want to be real. And then I think lastly, it's it's all about my young people. I, I think I've shared that I want to stand on the margins because I think that's where God is. And, and then I want to see those margins erased. That's something from Father Gregory Boyle. Um, so I think that's those are kind of my purposes. Yeah, it's powerful. How about your perspective? What's your, this is, mm. you, and you've kind mm. of talked a little bit about that too, but you know, this is, you you have such a different perspective than a lot of us do because of what you do but yeah my perspective is this dual it's this duality that's always fighting um because once again i'm a white man of privilege i'm straight i'm i'm christian like i fit all of the privilege boxes in america so i am the epitome of privilege and so for the majority of my life i've seen the world through that lens And yet when then I sit with my young people who are black or brown, um, many of them, and I'm educated, I have my master's, I'm going to pursue a doctorate, like, so my young people aren't as educated, they're gang involved, they have potentially substance use issues, mental health, they are as far on the margins as you get in our society outside of those experiencing homelessness. My young people are the most out there. And so Preston's always fighting this perspective of, privilege and then extreme not privilege so i'm always trying to once again if i find myself thinking through the lens of privilege i usually go to judgment wow if i can see through the lens of my young people i can see through the lens of empathy wow. and compassion right wow so I'm, I'm always fighting these and i'm not perfect but that's where i'm encouraging people that they need to learn about who they are, literally how they look and how they think, so that then they can learn the perspective of the other, whoever that other is for them, and see through the lens of the other, because then your perspective is widely different. Wow. I'm like speechless. 
That's unbelievable. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a fight. It's and a I'm fight. not usually it's speechless, man. And so it's, it's once again, the, the young Black male experience is, is so diversified. But for my young people, it's just, it, it's just one of um, struggle. We'll just say that. Struggle. Uh, it's tough. I don't know. How you, uh, it's tough. So, so let me get, so the last one. Yep. What's your passion in life? <laughs> I haven't said it already. I mean, my passion. Yeah, you've is, said it a know, lot. Yeah, I think um, my passion is, I think, people. Serving. Serving people. Um, being in, I like being in relationships. Like, I'm a deeply introverted guy, but I just love being in relationship with different people. And um, any way I can use my privilege to help others. Um, it's what I want to do. And, and once again, like I said, I, I, my passion is being on the margins and just loving people there because a lot of times they don't feel loved. So that's yep. awesome. Yep. What, what did your, what did you get from your mom and dad? I mean, they had to have such a huge influence on all of this. What are, what are like two things that you can just think of that really that you got from them besides the, you, you mentioned the education piece and how important that was, yeah. but yeah. I mean, the, the servant's heart has to come from somewhere, you know I mean? Yeah, I mean, um, hard work was a big one, you know? Um, my mom and dad both worked really hard and it was all about hard work, specifically with, like I said, academics and athletics. It's like, work hard, you know? Um, because when you have privilege, if you work hard, you can get what you want. Yeah, yeah. you really can. Yeah. Um, you not, might not be a professional athlete, but you can get a scholar, college scholarship or whatever. And so it was, you know, hard work, work ethic was huge. And then I do think it was this, um, this real sense of like selflessness. I mean, my parents did everything they could for us. You know, my parents talk a lot about um, scrounging for money just so they could, you know, put food on the table or they could take us on a nice vacation or, you know, I, even I was playing golf with my dad the other day and he's talking about um, on a vacation we took. And, you know, as a kid, you don't realize. And he's like, you know, we didn't have a lot of money for that. Like we couldn't do these certain things. And, and yet they did everything they could to make sure me and my siblings were given all these opportunities. They just worked hard and they, they were lived this selflessness of like, it's not about me. Yeah. You know, my dad as a coach, it's yeah. never been about my dad. That's something I really, really admire my dad. You know, we were talking the other day and he's, he's a well-known coach in Colorado. Yeah, he's a legend. Second or first and how many wins he has. And, and my dad, he's like, I never counted that. Yeah. And, and, and he's being real. And, and he's just like, that didn't matter. And so my dad just had this sense of like, I don't care about the accolades or the ego stuff. And, and I just really, really respected that. So, um, yeah, my parents, I think, gave me a lot, but those are two things specifically. Well, I, you know, we, I want to thank you for coming on. This has been unbelievable. I think we could probably go all night. Um, we but could. You, this is you, a privilege for me. For you, sure, you have really opened the eyes in a lot of people when they start listening and watching this. And, and that's what we want to do. We want to get it out. I want you to get to know this guy that I had on my podcast, Adam Katowski. Um, he's at Adam, coach at at coach adam 34 he's written a book called you are extraordinary mm. and um he yeah, you can listen ahead. listen to my podcast with him he was uh, he's unbelievable too he's out in chicago 
and he's done some work with some youth in detention centers and so forth awesome. as well too. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I just thank you for coming on Preston. You're, you're an amazing person. I mean, that's just the way I'm going to explain it. Um, I look up to you. I'm totally intrigued by you. I'm totally um, in awe of you. And um, we're going to, we're going to help this out and get this out there so people can learn and, and grow from this and understand more. So I appreciate you coming on. Um, this has been powerful. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. I mean, those are some nice words and, and I'll, I'll take them and yeah, but I really appreciate you. Uh, I look up to you as well and everything you're doing is just amazing. And so keep on keeping on. And I just, like I said, it's a privilege and an honor to be able to just share a little bit. So thank you, brother. Thank you.